Well, I'm really pleased to say that joining us on the Godcast today is Ella Whelan. Now, Ella Whelan is a freelance journalist. Uh, she's a political commentator, and she's the author of the book entitled What Women Want, Fun, Freedom, and an End to Feminism. She was the assistant editor at Spiked and host of the Spiked uh, podcast between 2015 and 2018. And Ella uh, appears regularly on television and radio, including uh, Question Time, um, Sky News, uh, uh, Good Morning Britain, Any Questions, Moral Maze and loads more. So, um, Ella, it's really wonderful to welcome you to the Godcast. How are you today? Very well. I'm looking forward to this. Thank you for having me. Great. Where, whereabouts in the world are you? Where, where are we connecting from? I am in Hackney in London in, in tier two. As I've, I've, I'm thinking now geographically in terms of tiers all the time. So <laughs> from East London, I'm zooming in. Well, we've been in tier three for what feels like forever in Berlin. So, uh, yeah, and, 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 the, and the debate is raging already, I can assure you, just um, to being up to church this morning. So are you, uh, do you originate from Hackney or where, 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 where is kind of home home for you? Yes, I was born on Moulins Road, which is now in a very hip part of Hackney near Victoria Park. Um, and I've lived in Hackney and Highbury my whole life. My family is Irish from a tiny town called Donard in Wicklow, but my, half of us live over here and I've always lived in London. So I haven't, I haven't been very inventive, I've moved up the road um, to Dalston from from yeah. the general Hackney area. So uh, a few people I've in interviewed have been um, uh, very clear that they are very much part of the kind of Westminster bubble or, you know, or very rarely get out of London. Do you, do you manage to get out of London very much or not? Uh, yeah, I, I went to university in Sussex, um, which in Brighton is not exactly a million miles from London. So again, I didn't move far. But I did get to the seaside for about four years. And my husband is from Devon um, in a really nice uh, part of Devon on a farm, grew up on a farm. So I get to go from the mean streets of the city to um, walking with sheep and a sheepdog. So I get, okay. I do get out. I do go from one extreme to the other now and again. Okay. What about north? Have you, have you managed to get north of the Watford Gap or is that not? not happened yet <laughs> no I've never no I've never I have never lived anywhere else I've got I've been with the work that I, I do I work with a charity called the BOI charity and they run a um a championship a debating championship called debating matters and so the wonderful thing about that is I do get to go for a day um or we did before lockdown and all the restrictions to schools all over the country from oh the from the very top up in Scotland right. um right down to the bottom so I visited many places. Um, one of the best places was uh, school in Salford. Was one of the best championships I ever went to. But no, I've always lived down south. I'm afraid. Okay. Well, one of the standard questions I have on the podcast is: Have you, have you ever been to Burnley? Has uh, the charity work brought you to Burnley at all? I've never been to Burnley. No. Okay, you don't know what you're missing, Ella. You look forward to visiting it sometimes. Well, you're very welcome. You know, I can show you the delights of Burnley anytime. So. So what, what did you study at uh, university, Ella? What, what was your academia pathway? Uh, I did, like every good student who doesn't know what to do, English literature um, at Sussex, which was fantastic. I loved it. Um, and I stayed on to do an MA in contemporary literature. And it was great because Sussex gave me the opportunity to not only read the classics, but also do, do some weird stuff. Um, they're, they're kind of hot on their 
alternatives to the canon. Um, so it was a really great four years of reading and talking about books and not much else. And um, I can't say that it led me directly into what I'm doing right now, but it, uh, I've just, I've always loved reading. I've always loved fiction. Mm. Um, and so that was, it was four years of, of bliss, really. I was sad to leave it. So you, you say some of the weird stuff. What, what, what are we talking here? Oh, well, uh, I mean, not necessarily weird, but I was allowed to, for example, I, I um, was, still am to a certain extent, obsessed with uh, Samuel Beckett. And so I was allowed to kind of specialise in um, his work and, you know, write essays about, uh, what did I write essays about, um, kind of the what being meant and uh, taking in-depth looks at a single word in not I or how lips move or all this kind of um, rather indulgent stuff, but which was really fascinating. Mm. Um, so they, it, it, it was, I know that in other, I mean, we all, I think secretly probably want to have bit gone to Oxbridge and I did try, but I got rejected. Um, but the, unlike the kind of rigorous process that you get there, I think Sussex gave you a bit more breathing space to um, think and think politically. I had quite an active, relatively active political life at Sussex as well. So it was as an entire experience, university was, it's always had a bit of a reputation of being a bit I don't know, would you call it edgy or alternative? Mm. Um, and uh, that was what really attracted me to it. And did the social aspect of uni um, um, give as much delight as the academic side of, of, of university? We, we, did you uh, work hard and play hard or were you, were you <laughs> a very well-behaved young lady? <laughs> no, <laughs> I was, I, I didn't, I, I was quite meticulous about getting to my classes, but that was because some of the lecturers, especially in the, the sort of more old school, and um, mm. would pull you up if they hadn't seen that you were in the lecture. So it was more out of fear than a real dedication to academia. But uh, yeah, I had a, uh, had the good luck to fall in with a very good crowd on my first day of university. And I stayed with the girl, the women that I lived with in first year right through. And we lived through together for the full four years. And wow. I met my husband there. I met him on the first day, but that, but we didn't get together for a while afterwards, but yeah, the, the thing about Sussex is it's a campus university and yeah. coming from London, obviously I had had my fill growing up of um, bright lights, big city, going out and all that kind of thing. And so the the idea of going to a London university, while they're very good um, and not having that kind of bubble effect, if you like, of campus mm. didn't really, I, I thought I don't want an anonymous experience. I want yeah. to um, get together. And when we were in Sussex, we lived in first year, the now bulldozed and non-existent um, housing called Eastlope, which was were built by the workers who built the university to live while in while they were building the university. So you can imagine what state they were in. Um, mm. They were very old, falling down, but full of charm. So mm. it was like living in a mini village, the first year of university. So yeah. it was the full Sussex hippie experience. Sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds good. So um, now you did you did mention before you agreed to do the interview that when we when I mentioned uh, faith matters, you did say that you were a bit of a relapsed Catholic, but. Um, I, uh, I, I've interviewed a few Roman Catholics now and I've decided that you're like the malware virus in a computer. You just can't shake it off, I think. So So is that fair to say, Ella? Is there still a bit of uh, Roman Catholicism in your, your very being somewhere, would you say, or, or am I completely wrong? I remember reading um, 
Bride's Head Revisited at school and which I didn't think was that great a book in all honesty but the one thing that always stuck with me I remember was this line I can't remember who says it it talks about faith Catholicism particularly as um as and his faith as a twitch upon a thread you know something that he even if he completely rejected the idea of it logically and consciously and all the rest of it that there was still something um in him that pulled him back to it and I think that my relationship with religion is tied up in my family relationships because coming from an Irish Catholic family um, there is an understanding that lots of us in our family who might not go to mass or who might uh, not actively believe anymore um, enjoy going to the odd service when we go back home to Ireland see my grandmother um, who I think still take pleasure in some of the things that we learn from that particular schooling and faith when we grew up because I was com I went and did my own communion I was confirmed I did the whole whole shebang um and so I I know I don't believe any longer and know I don't go to mass and um I don't pray or anything like that and my politics it, most importantly have um is really what has changed my mind about religion but I look on it very fondly and maybe it's living in maybe you could say maybe it's living in bad faith that I kind of dip in here and there um but I I don't see it necessarily just as a something that's like malwevars I can't shake as I, I look on it much more fondly and I you know you I think there's I think, the possibility I'm glad I went through it basically I'm yeah. glad that I was raised like that you think there's the possibility that you may return to it at some point in your life or is it kind of a, a chapter that's closed now it's funny it's one of those things where um because my partner is uh, grew up in the Church of England, um, and uh, maybe it's also because of the you know the particulars of my Irish Catholic background. I've when we've talked about having children, starting a family, I've always been adamant that they that we would they would go to a Catholic school because I went to a Catholic school, um, and that they would uh, have a similar life to me. And obviously, he's not that interested in it really. Um, so, so it's I can't see myself going back um to it because of the way that my political life has developed um and the things that I believe in now yeah. but I think there are I think there are always are lessons from um religion that are beneficial that you don't necessarily have to uh have faith to be appreciative of yeah thank you um so you said a few moments ago that, that, that university wasn't your uh, wasn't the route to what you do now. So what was your route, Ella? What what kind of happened that thought right? This is the this is the road I want to go down. Well, I I didn't ever want to be a journalist. Um, I, as I even though I've just gone on about how great I thought university was, by the end of four years I was sick of writing um, <laughs> and wanted to. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wanted to do something completely different. I've thought about becoming a teacher, which is something I've um, still do. I want to do at some point in my life. Um, had all these ideas. And then really it was working with Spiked, um, the magazine on a political issue around free speech on campus. Um, Tom Slater, who's now the deputy editor at Spiked um, and some of the other members of the team came to Sussex University and, and I helped them organize a debate about no platforming um, speakers on campus because at Sussex at the time there was a lot of debate about 
whether or not there should be a policy of no platform. There was uh, a lot of fuss about different speakers coming and there was a growing trend of censorship at the university. And I thought that was wrong and Spike thought that was wrong. And so I got involved with them that way. And that's really how I started to think about writing for them and started to think about writing in general. It wasn't the actual process of, of journalism. It was the politics that brought me in because I, you know, I thought it was a good way to try and express some of the things that I was thinking about and I could write decent enough because I had had done it for the last few years. Um, so yeah, it was, it was really through spiked. It wasn't, I didn't decide to try and become a journalist. It was spiked that pulled me in there and the, the strength of the kind of very exciting politics that they were putting out. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll get onto a, a few political matters in a few moments if we can, but I'm just intrigued how it works because, uh, you know, I've interviewed quite a few, I almost said of your type. <laughs> and what I mean by that is uh, Isabel Oakshot has, has been on the Godcast and um, Ian Dunt. How, how, does the, how does it work with you getting the TV stuff? Do, do you have an agent or, or do they just approach you directly? How does, how does that work? I think both Oakshot and Dunt would be horrified that they would consider, you consider me of their type. Um, but the, well, in relation to, it's one of the frustrating things actually, is that I often find you will write a, I could write a, you know, a 1,500 word essay that I've meticulously researched and thought about for a very long time. And it's kind of, I think it's this masterpiece and I put it mm. out there. And people might write it, but no one really cares. And I spend 20 seconds firing off a tweet about something that's irritated me on the television and the phone's ringing off the hook of people trying to get you on. It's, it's, a, it's a sad fact, maybe if you put it that way, of the current state of journalism in particular that, or maybe it's just, a, maybe it's just the easiest way technically for, to book people, but mm -hmm. it's being on social media and commenting all the time that gets you that kind of uh, exposure. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's actually in some ways, it's quite nice because you can, you can dip in and out of it. But obviously I'm very lucky that I get to go on and have my opinion heard on uh, television because the thing that's always excited me is you know reaching other audiences and that's why I will generally say yes to going on you know programs on the left on the right on in between here there and everywhere um, writing for anyone that will have me because I think it's always good to try and reach more people the more people that read what you think the uh, more success you might have in convincing people. Yeah, I think that's becoming um, kind of a living reality for myself with this Godcast uh, started off quite small and, and it's, it's just kind of, I can see it getting bigger and it's like, whoa, this is great. This is wonderful. And, and that, that opportunity to reach out to a wider audience to talk about faith and politics and ethics and all sorts of things is, is great. And I'm really uh, recognising the, the value and the strength and sometimes the downside of uh, the power of the internet. Um, if we could just um, move on to a couple of uh, political things, Ella. I, um, I I did look back at a few of your articles. You, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I read one um, uh, going back to the summer and, and just on the subject of uh, the the White Lives Matter flag that was flown over the Etihad Stadium in Manchester. And obviously I'm from Burnley, so uh, that, that, that became a huge thing in the town and also nationwide. Um, I was just wondering what your take is on that now as, as the months have, have um, gone by and whether we, you think we've actually made progress on, on, on this matter of uh, Black Lives Matter or, or just wondering what your views were. 
it's one of those things it's it's when the news broke that george floyd had been killed by um police in america there i was very inspired and, and wanted to be in solidarity with the protests that were taking place because i think it was a it's a it was a it's not the right word to use but it was a wonderful thing that so many people were so angry and related to the death of one man it just kind of encapsulated why um things like this were wrong that it was that it was uh one man and that people understood the racism behind that and so i went on some of the original protests when they first were kind of spontaneously happening and there was a very exciting atmosphere particularly the one in parliament uh square there was a just seas of young people um and there was kind of speeches happening there speeches happening there there was just politics was in the air um and there was something there was, there was a potential there in there for um making some kind of intervention and saying that this was wrong i think the problem is there's another side to it which is that um outside of that kind of spontaneous reaction the uh the the one side of the politics of black lives matter is this very censorious sense that you can only uh you you can only be for example a white ally you can't if you are white have a say on some of these issues you can't criticize uh the black lives matter movement unless you are black that might be a characterization but there's a general sense of white people should stay stand aside you know like the book Rene du lodge why i'm no longer talking to white people about race um and let black people speak and i think that the problem i've always had with that is that it destroys the possibility of political solidarity and there are some things about the black lives matter movement that i just simply don't agree with so i don't agree with the idea of white privilege uh, i find it quite absurd that we've ended up talking about uh, the privilege of white people rather than the oppression of black people that's kind of turned around in a way that i don't think makes any kind of political sense um but more importantly it's this it's this question of does what is this actually doing for um a camp a, a political movement against racism what is it actually doing to make black people's lives better more free um less full of prejudice and i think that a lot of the time it feels like the official black lives matter movement whether it's conversations on social media or elsewhere seems to be talking about this kind of very academic um very censorious notion of yeah white privilege and that kind of thing rather than actually looking at the ways in which black people are still treated differently to white people in everyday life and focusing on more on the more material aspects of it so i think in terms of progress i mean inevitably these things um die down and uh you might say it's a disappointing thing that the kind of it's gone off the boil um in terms of protests but there are still very serious things happening i mean we currently in the news at the moment there's uh there's news of the home office attempting to deport a plane full of jamaicans and there's still hangover not just hangovers but there's still actions being taken under the concept of the hostile environment mm. in relation to not just the windrush scandal but general policies that the um home office has in relation to immigration that you can outright say is racist so th this it you know it's not over just because people haven't stopped talking have mm. stopped talking about it but i think i would be much more open to a politics that talks about uh freedom and inclusive universalism universalist approach against racism rather than this sort of it's almost kind of student politicsy uh trend that black lives matter as a kind of official thing tends to yeah. take 
there's a there's a few things that I, and I realise it's a really sensitive subject, but I'm trying to think of you know the town I live, and where and you know and I think a lot of us were just ashamed that 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 you know had some sort of that flag that White Lives Matters flag had some sort of association with us that we that's what we all felt, and it's absolutely not what everybody feels. But I would say there's there's quite a lot of people in Burnley that do feel that that there's, um, you know, um, at the just uh, the election, Tommy Robinson was up on the estates and and people turned out in good numbers to go and listen to him speak. And that, and that I wonder why that is. What, what do you think the disconnect is, is for those people, Ella? Well, it's not a mystery um, to me because I think the, 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 especially the issue of Tommy Robinson, you have someone who has made his career out of the fact that he is this this kind of person that the liberal elite are terrified of who they keep trying to cancel me he says you know they they keep trying to silence me most of his celebrity is about the idea that he is a thorn in the side of of what guardian readers and the problem is people do keep trying to silence him and do keep trying to censor him and so he has a point and so that part you know part of what i've always said is let idiots like Tommy Robinson or whether it's Alex Jones in the US and sound off all they like. It really doesn't take long to pick apart their arguments. And yeah. so, you know, the idea of that Tommy Robinson has the interests of the of you know the Burnley working class or wherever it is um, at heart, and that this isn't just a kind of celebrity campaign for him is a bit ridiculous. I mean, that you it doesn't it doesn't take long to show why his views on um on muslims are prejudiced it doesn't take long to show why his you know views on women are backward you know he's he's not he's not a politically interesting guy but the thing is that people keep trying to silence him and that's what makes him interesting but on on the white lives matter banner i think it is worth taking a minute to think about these things and as you say try and understand what's going on there because this is part of the thing. There's nothing. There's nothing brilliant about saying white lives matter. Because this this is part of my problem with the Black Lives Matter slogan. You know, without sounding really crass, yes, lives matter. All lives matter. You know, what a lame phrase. Um, you know, it it kind of it yeah. says nothing. Um, it, it it's it's the kind of it links into a kind of victim politics and so white lives matter just sounds like this kind of whiny thing oh well, my life matters too yeah, yeah. You think, oh god get a grip but within it is a kind of is the anger that i think lots of uh of white working class you want to use that phrase people feel when they see very posh people on television because it does tend to be talking about white privilege and um, why, you know, if you're white, you automatically have a better life than everyone else. And you've got someone who's just about scraping by, you know, got a, got a bunch of kids at home who are hungry, yeah. whose life yeah. is rubbish, who thinks what? And mm. so, you know, rather than talking to that person and saying, these are the things that black and white working class people have in common. These are the political desires that we have. Let's come together and change the world. Identity politics that's wrapped up in Black Lives Matter tries to separate people and says, actually, no, you are separate. And that's where the anger comes from. Mm. So I'd always say, rather than just dismissing it as, oh, look at this shameful racism, actually understand what's going on there. And mm. once you talk to people for a second, they say, well, of course, I think it's bad that 
uh, that racism exists. Well, of course, I think it's uh, that people should be treated equally. And you know, we don't we don't have a nation of prejudiced racist people. All we have is actually a lot of the time people who aren't talking to each other. Yeah, I think this for me this raises questions about how we debate. Um, and I think I'm going to read this because it's quite a long question, but I wanted to ask you this. Um, so, for example. Um, I was wondering, Ella, what you thought about where there is an ism. So if it's racism, anti-Semitism, feminism, fascism, the chance to me, I feel the chances are that those who are being charged with it immediately go all prickly and um, the barriers come up and the defence mechanisms kick in and they deny that that to be the truth. And I wonder if one starts the conversation with uh, you're the guilty ones and we're the, we're the self-righteous ones in this in any conversation. Um, I think the debate immediately just goes boof. And I, I wonder if there's a better way to debate. And I, I was wondering what you thought on that. Well, maybe it's maybe it is because I was brought up a Catholic, but I've got a tremendous uh, belief in redemption. And, and I think it's something that actually is sorely missing. You mm. know, I've got to, I've always believed that no matter how far gone someone is, you should always have a just the door open just a chink to for the possibility of them to change even the most heinous person i think has the potential to change and that's because i have a have a you know spiked um slogan is humanity is underrated um and i have a real belief in the good of humanity and human beings and so then i think that you know if someone comes at you and says i believe that uh I believe in the blood libel about Jews and they run the world and they you know, eat their babies and the Holocaust wasn't real. You might think, okay, there's not enough time in the day for me to deal with you because you are so mad and prejudiced and mm. racist. Move along. You know, and I'm not saying that we should, as a kind of project, feel the necessity to take on every nutter. But if it's less kind of hitting you over the head like that and less mad, and maybe someone is saying something that you politically or morally or ethically completely disagree with and actually really offends you. Rather than just dismissing it, I think it's always better to try and debate with that person because you should always be trying to win people over to your side of the argument if you are interested in changing the world. And that's why I think debate in itself is very important. I work with the Academy of Ideas, which runs the Battle of Ideas Festival. And the whole idea of that entire, the organization and the project and the festival is all centered around the idea that free speech in a debate is where politics really can only happen because it's actually got a really radical point at the end of it, which is that if you shut people down with isms, more often than not, who decides the ism? So, you know, at, at, for example, if you take the, the, the discussion around Brexit, what was a very normal belief and conversation about sovereignty, democracy, maybe immigration among lots of working class people was kind of finger pointed and called fa you know, fascist fascism or racism or xenophobia and all whole different kinds of isms by uh, people with a huge amount more political power, what's called the kind of Remainer elite. And so, you know, that's a kind of that that's a, dis a discussion that gets closed off. So I would I would champion the idea of debating in of itself as not just a tool for politics to happen, but as a kind of a belief that you you always have the possibility, if your argument is good enough, mm. to change the other person's mind. And I have known people 
in in different areas of work that I've done, my husband as well, who have you know all various kinds of prejudices about all kinds of things. And once you get to know people, you realise how complex we are. So they might come out with some kind of like we've just been talking about with the White Lives Matter, might come out with some kind of line where you think, oh gosh, you know, why are you saying that? Once you start talking to them, you realise that actually what they're upset about is something else. I mean, it's the classic thing with immigration. People will say, well, yeah, I'm sick of all these people coming over here and taking all our jobs. But then, but then you realise that actually they work with an Italian immigrant um, or a Romanian immigrant and they're not, they're not racist to their core. What's going on is that they're annoyed about resources and they've kind of put their anger in a place where it's misplaced maybe. So it's yeah. just all about talking to people. Yeah. Ella, I, I don't want to disappoint you, but but I, I do find those answers uh, quite profoundly rooted in, well, in Christian, in Christian ethics, really. I think you're talking about redemption, you're talking about empathy, you're talking about debating well and kind of doing it kind of so. Um, maybe you might come back to this Catholicism <laughs> later in life, who knows? Um, I've got quite a few questions, but, we're, we're, but you're, um, I need to move on. Um, I want to ask you, this and and this is going down a, just to give it some context. I'm going down a Christian route here. Um, so I want to ask: Is discrimination across uh, against a female ever acceptable? And I'm very much thinking on theological grounds here, kind of religious upbringing. So I'm, I'm keen to know what your take is on um, in the news in our ch in the Church of England at the moment. There's some. I think there's a bit of a powder keg waiting to explode around uh, Christian conservative positions around um, um, same-sex relationships. But um, but in this kind of conservative wing of the church, the, you know, the, the male is clearly the dominant figure and the woman is expected to um, be subordinate and submissive. And, um, and quite often the female is happy to take on that role. Um, I'm just wondering, because I, I know you're... you're, you're you know, big feminist, um, what your take is on that in terms of, from a, a theological perspective? Well, the thing about, the, the thing about gender equality and women's role in society is that I've, I'm, I don't, and especially in the book that I wrote, I don't, I'm not necessarily too hung up on what people get up to in their private lives um, and how the, the interpersonal relationships of gen, of the genders, when uh, we are making decisions about shaping our own personal lives, it's about the political aspect of it. So the book argues about for women's freedom in relation to uh, things like bodily autonomy and abortion rights in relation to access to society's resources, childcare and that kind of thing. Um, and actually I say that the problem with contemporary feminism is that it's too much been fixated on how women are feeling, how women see themselves, you know, representation, how we, uh, are psychologically relating to men and that that's uh, that's just you know that's people's personal lives and I've, I always have rejected the idea of the personal as political and in that vein I've actually in the past defended things like gentlemen's clubs I'm not comparing gentlemen's clubs with the church please don't think I am but you know uh roles and places and spaces um, in society where uh, there might be, if you want to put it that way, discrimination against one gender, whether it be, you know, the women's, women's ponds in Hampstead Heath, whether it be a male-only prayer group at church, whatever, you know, whatever it is. I think that the, the problem is 
we have become so fixated on policing people's uh, personal relationships with each other that you get hung up on these kinds of things. I think that if it was the case that uh, women were being unmasked, blocked from certain areas of society that was holding them back, then you would argue against that. And that's, you know, that's why women argue to break into the workplace. That's why um, women argue to break into universities, you know, all, all the progress that's happened um, over the years. But uh, I've never felt in incredibly strongly about the idea of forcing people with a certain faith to change their views in line with other people's politics. So, for example, to take another um, religious example, I am not a fan of the hijab. Um, politically, I don't, th I, I, I don't think it's a great thing. I don't understand the concept of hiding a woman away, all those kinds of things. Uh, and I, that's why I would make a decision to not believe in that religion and not follow the rules of that religion. But I think that if you do believe in it and you do want to follow it, then fine, it's none of my business. And so I wouldn't campaign against it. Um, so I think it's taking the kind of, you know, I think religious freedom is a is in a belief and an idea and a principle that is much maligned at the moment and you don't have to be part of the god squad to defend it uh, actually it's just a sense of well living in a liberal society living in a tolerant society means that you're tolerant of other people's views even if you completely disagree with them yeah yeah thank you i just want to move on because i've got another kind of big beefy one just to keep the topic nice and light Ella I'd like to talk about abortion now um, and I was intrigued by the article that you wrote for Spike about uh, the situation particularly in Poland I've been to Poland and uh, I, went, I went to Krakow and thought it was a beautiful city but um, you know perhaps a little bit naive to uh, the theo theological aspect of life there and um, and the control of the government and um, I was in I was intrigued by um, this issue that you raised you wrote about the legal challenge um, to a 1993 act which allowed abortion in cases where there is a high probability of severe and irreversible fetal defect and, and your article goes on from there but what struck me was the bit that you wrote that between 80 and 120,000 Polish women ha had to leave the country and have an abortion outside of Poland and I was shocked by that that, that one that the women had to do that but also I was quite surprised that there was you know, obviously taking into account that some of those were through medical reasons and such like, but 80 to 120,000 unwanted pregnancies was, was also kind of, wow. And um, I, I, I just kind of wonder what, what your thoughts about this is. Um, you know, this seems quite wrong for me. There's an, there's a, an, I think there's, not to call you naive, but there's an incredible naivety within Western societies about what uh, what a woman's experience generally can be like with her, with you know reproduction with children and with contraception I mean I so often get this argument to me well why don't women just use contraception and it's like no one's none of these people have ever had sex and don't understand that actually these things are only a certain percentage effective mistakes happen and that human beings are not infallible <laughs> women certainly aren't infallible um, and so the, you know, the idea, the fact of unwanted pregnancies is a fact of life, is a, will be a fact of life for many, many women. 
And I think that it's fundamentally wrong that we are denied the ability to make choices about those mistakes, if you want to call it that, um, or, or you know, decisions in our life that we want to change, that the state holds the power of uh, what happens with and holds the power of deciding what happens with our bodies and that we don't. And obviously men don't have that because men don't have uh, babies and they don't have wombs. But because there's not the there's not the kind of political desire to control men's bodies either, and so that's why I am for, in principle, the decriminalisation of abortion completely, so that the decision is made safely between a woman and her doctor, and nobody else, not her mother, not her priest, not her politician, gets to have a say in it. The question of uh, women essentially being exported out of countries um, is a very serious one. I mean, it, particularly also in Ireland, um, which, as you know, many people might know, has a sore and long history of uh, emigration. And the shameful fact is that people, women are still having to, even now after the law change, are still having to leave Ireland not quite under blankets as they would have done in the 50s and 60s but you know are largely in secrecy to go and access abortion services in the UK there are wonderful women's organizations that run literally run ships that that sail to give people medical attention that they need um and all of this points to the fact that it's what's quite clearly happening is in these countries women are not being able to get the uh the medical resources and the medical care that they need. Poland is a very interesting example because it's tied up with a question of democracy because you know what's happening there is political changes that on the one hand often don't happen without a vote. So as I wrote in that article, the nature of the way in which these changes are being instituted in the law is dubious because some of the judges were, appoint were politically appointed and all that kind of thing. But also these are, you know, these are changes that have to be won on a political ground. That's why I think, you know, in order to change the law, for example, in the UK, potentially we need uh, the same as in Ireland, a referendum, some kind of public debate about this, mm. um, because these changes have to have to be a political decision and a political question posed to people. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ella. It, it, it's, um, it, I think I think what you've said is quite revealing and, and um, you know, I, what I like about the Godcast is I just want to gain people's opinions and and for people to hear it. I just want to quickly ask you if I can. Um, I've got two teenage daughters, and um, I don't. I, I I love music, and I've been really struck by Billie Eilish, who um, was recently pictured in her Casuals. I don't know if you saw the picture. And she got uh, she got pretty much pillared in the in the media for being what might be described as normal, whatever that means. But you know, just a bit untidy, a bit unkept. But I I also know that uh, you know going into some of our local schools that the young kids, a lot of the girls, absolutely love uh, Billie Eilish. And um, I think uh, I think. I just want to hear it from you. Who, who do you think our young girls particularly should be looking to for inspiration right now? Well, it's it's a it's a discussion that is kind of the uh, one of the central points of contemporary feminist thought is this idea of what influences girls, what influences women, and there's a huge amount of hand wringing and panic about it. Um, you know, if we have kind of the supermodel vision only and kind of beauty standards that are unattainable. 
you know, whether it be the Kardashians who look like kind of Barbies on steroids to, um, you know, to someone out to kind of the Spice Girls when I was a kid. Um, mm. What does that do to young girls' mental health? What does it, what does it do to their sense of themselves? And I've always had the idea that, that you know, particularly young teenage girls are some of the toughest, occasionally <laughs> nastiest uh, people on the planet, speaking as someone who was particularly, a, probably at some times quite a cruel teenage girl, um, that their sense of themselves is often underestimated. And the, the exciting thing about something like someone like Billie Eilish, who you know is a beautiful singer um, first and foremost, but also has taken this position where she's rejecting all of this stuff and she isn't making a big political point about it. She looks a bit like me. She's kind of a normal sized um, young woman, um, isn't, isn't tiny, isn't, you know, doesn't wear loads of makeup, all that kind of thing, is that she just says, leave me alone. I do, I'm a singer, leave me alone. You're not gonna snap me in my bikini. I'm not gonna post things like that. She likes wearing these big baggy jerseys um, and she just says, leave me alone. And it's quite refreshing. But I think that most girls do feel like that. Yes, we might put on the slap when we're going out. Yes, we might uh, fuss about our outfits. And I'm sure you know, you've heard all of that from your teenage girls and, and feel insecure sometimes and all that kind of thing. But generally, I think that if you give girls the sense that they can do anything in life, if you put forward a positive view of the world and say, go get it, which I think the sad fact is contemporary feminism a lot of the time at the moment says the world is terrifying the world is full of dangers you should always be looking over your shoulder you should always be ready for the fact that you're going to be discriminated against instead of saying go out there and don't let anyone get in your way um i think girls then start to take that in mind and think oh well oh well maybe maybe life is going to be too yeah. hard to me yeah and i'm very lucky in that i always had a i always had people who said what do you mean you're not good enough go out and prove that people are yeah. That, that proves to people that you are good enough. And I think maintaining that positive aspect of role models. Anyone who, a role model is good if they do what they want to do without anyone else getting in their way. And perhaps in that way, Billie Eilish is a good role model. Yeah. Ella, it's been great talking to you. I think my dogs let me know the postman's at the door. <laughs> uh, but this, uh, you know, it's not the BBC. This is a very real Godcast podcast. And, uh, I just want to thank you for your time. It's been really great. I've really enjoyed you listening to you. And I wish you all, all the very best as you progress through your career. And uh, remember, if you're ever up this way and you fancy a brew in Burnley, just give us a shout. And uh, I'll take you up on that. Yeah. I'll get the kettle on. So uh, just uh, to thank you very much and uh, guide people to the godcast.co.uk to watch any more interviews. Uh, but for now, Ella, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.